Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about what are the, the must-haves for a deal before we even like entertain it, before we even dig deeper. What, what does it need to have? We have not conferred on our list. However, I have a sneaking suspicion there's going to be a lot of overlap. So what I was thinking is maybe you provide your one. I'll provide one. Mm-hmm. And you provide one. And then I'll provide one. And my guess is by the end, we will have provided three. three. <laughs> All right. Top five. Well, top three is what it's going to end up being. Uh, cash flow. Big surprise. Yep. Yeah, cash flow, cash flow is my number three. In no particular order. No, no particular order. But I don't need to say that anymore. But you you have to have cash flow from day one. Right. Right. That's the nuance. It's not just, is there going to be cash flow at some point? It's like, the day we close on this, is it cash flow positive? If not, that's, I mean, there might be a scenario where we might consider that, but that's usually one of the first boxes that needs to be checked. And if it's not, that means price too high or Mm -hmm. something. That maybe it's... There are worlds where you don't need cash flow from day one. Those just aren't the types of deals that we do historically. Like, you know, development deal doesn't have cash. It has cash flow from day one. It's weird. Like a heavy lift where it's like this thing is condemned. It's dilapidated. But in a year, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. But that's a different thing. Yes. For us, it's about hedging and going in, knowing cash flow from day one means that even if we don't do anything to improve the property, it's still going to be self-sustaining, at least for <laughs> until we screw something up horribly. And that's that buys you a lot of time. It buys you a buffer. It lets you sleep better at night. If you go straight into a closing a deal that you are immediately in the red and the timer is ticking, that's so stressful. It's like... Every day that goes by, you're just you're bleeding more and more in money. So you might be led to make worse decisions, start to compromise on certain things, and so cash flow just keeps everything healthy. Yeah, there's so many variables that impact real estate that will change uh, frequently. And if you're getting into a deal where you're not going to get paid um, for you know eight to twelve months, and that clock starts ticking, like, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And more time is very valuable. So the ability to sit there and, and wait out economic shifts is incredibly important. There's a lot of developers that have been getting slapped in the face for the past year or so. Well, yeah. cost of capital goes up, cost of materials goes up, cost of labor goes up, and their budgets they thought they had nailed were very much off. Um, and They have to get that stuff built to get any income. So they just have to pay up. Whereas guys like us, if we had some renovations planned, hey, maybe we wait. We'll do them later. You know, don't have to do them. You know what's really interesting? I was just thinking about this. Is like, so I've been in real estate for about a decade, and for the first six-ish years, not much changed year to year. Like, the market was really good. It was like 2012, 13 through 2020. Like, it was more or less, like, steadily climbing, but nothing that, like, from one year to the, the next year, you look back and you were like, wow, everything changed. In the last five years, or since, like, 2020, effect, essentially, every 12-month period has looked very, very different than the previous 12-month period. And so it's just a, it's just a shows like even in real estate, things can change. And so cash flow is just one is one of those things that as things change, 
everything can stay the same mm-hmm. if you have it. If you don't have it, then good luck. Get it. Go get it. What do you how, much, how much cash flow is good cash flow? Percentage-wise, in year think. one? I mean, for us, you know, 3%, 2% is like on the lower end of acceptable, assuming it's a value-add deal, and pretty quickly we can get that up above 5 Um Five is ideal. Five was very much more doable a couple of years ago on a value add deal. These days, I think 3% is the new five, but it used to be, you know, 5% in year one, seven plus percent by year two to three is kind of what we were looking for. Now I think it's like three and then getting above five by year two is adequate, mm-hmm. but uh, it's just a product of the interest rate environment. Stupid interest rates changing everything. All right. My number one Again, no particular order, but this one actually maybe is my most important one um, is neighborhood because all the other things, you know, cash flow is a function of buying at the right price, getting the right debt. And so like there's there's variables there that you can negotiate and control to a degree. The the, the other one that I'm going to talk about, um, I'm pretty sure it's on yours, too. That one's also variable to a degree, but the neighborhood, you're not going to do much unless you're developing that neighborhood, um, which is isn't what we do you're not going to do much to really improve a neighborhood. And so if it sucks, it's probably going to suck or it might be improving over time, but I need to be in the path of progress and understand like, is this in the next five, 10 years going to be better than what it is now? Or is this always going to be on the outskirts? Nobody really likes living there because life is so much easier when you're in a a neighborhood with high demand. The whole game just gets way, way, way simpler. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. Um, this one actually wasn't on my list. I've got something similar, which I'll uh, dive into next after I speak on this one. But I would say that this is, I mean, this is the old cliche saying location, location, location. But the, I'd say the only argument for going into a neighborhood that's not great is if you are going to acquire that entire neighborhood and make it great. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. If you're just going to buy one building and expect that the neighborhood is going to support your, your your high rents just because, you know, you think they look appropriate relative to other comps that are not in the same neighborhood. It doesn't work like that. So either go into one that's, that's, that has a path of development that that's in the path of development, I should say, or if you're going to buy the whole damn neighborhood and fix it up and make it better, that's, that's another play, but you got to have a lot of cash for that one. Totally. If you're new, the the nuance here too is when you're new, you have to kind of go into the crappier neighborhoods Mm -hmm. to a degree because typically if you don't have a lot of capital in the beginning, and so you're going to need to go where the prices are, where you're going to get be able to afford something. And that's usually in the rougher neighborhoods. Um, and that's not such a bad thing because you actually learn a lot playing the game on hard mode. <laughs> you see a lot. You yeah. see a lot of things. Yeah. And then if as you have more money and you can move into the better neighborhoods, the game just gets easier. So like if you're brand new, don't think that you're going to go buy a class A building in a class A neighborhood. It's probably not going to happen except the fact that you're going to need to go and uh, get your get your sweat equity, and you're going to need to earn it sweating bullets, <laughs> or dodging bullets, or dodging bullets. Yes, I had a uh, <laughs> my first building was just like this in a rougher neighborhood. Um, I I made the mistake that I talked about thinking, oh, I'll I'll do the market comps here and see what the comps come in at. Um, but my block in particular was rough, even for a rough neighborhood, mm-hmm. and so I wasn't going to get those rents I thought I was going to get. But within the first Four months, I had a person uh, pass in my building. I had to have a body removed. Oh, fun. <laughs> Natural causes. It wasn't like a, a, like a, a shooting crime. or something. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like that. Yeah. But yeah, within the first year with that building, I saw a lot of things. Yeah, when, you, when you're in a bad neighborhood, you, your management tax is going to be so much higher than when you're in a good neighborhood. 
Nothing happens in a good neighborhood. Nothing happens in a good neighborhood. <laughs> but in a bad neighborhood, you need to go to the property like every day just to make sure no like vagrants have like mm-hmm. camped out in your basement. Yep. Like, and that doesn't seem like a big tax, but it is. Like it adds up. They break in. That's how they get there. And you have to fix that break in. <laughs> it's expensive. Every single time. All right. Um, so my next one is that was kind of related to this was positive uh, supply demand imbalance, meaning you want to be in an asset, whether it's multifamily or whatever, you want to see um, supply lower than the demand for that particular product in that particular area, which is kind of a neighborhoody type thing. Mm-hmm. But um, you'll hear Sam Zell talk about this a lot. You know, it's really basic. You look at any market, any asset class and say, is there more demand than there is supply? And what's the probability of there more supply coming on in the future? Because that's going to impact the pricing of your asset, the demand from the renters and corresponding rents that they're pick, they're going to pay. Well, this so. is really interesting because even here in the Twin Cities, you can look at, say, Class A, mm-hmm. and you can say, like, there's too much Class A yes. at times where it's like you're in a great neighborhood and you have a great building, but there's, there's countless other nice buildings in that same neighborhood, mm-hmm. and there's just not enough people to live in it. And so... That's where you see a month free, two months free, exactly, three months free. Concessions. And so it's not just about moving into a great neighborhood. It's moving into a great neighborhood that, you know, has the potential to continue growing in, into your, your particular asset. Mm-hmm. And so if you were, you know, buying a class C asset in a class A neighborhood, that's actually maybe pretty damn good because there's probably not a lot of class C buildings in a class A neighborhood. And you can't build more class C. Yeah. It's unless you go back in time, build it and then come back forward in time and <laughs> you just can't do it. And that's, that's one of the best things that I like about our asset class is you, just, you can't build more of it. Sure. You could build a class A subsidized housing project, but that's a, that's a different product. A different product. Yeah. This is market rate. You just, you don't have to go through a program. There's not all the red tape of, of having a subsidized housing project. Um, you just, you just can't build stuff that rents in our area for a, a one bedroom for a thousand bucks. It's just not possible to create that. So it's, in my opinion, one of the best supply-demand situations to be in. Mm-hmm. Strong demand, increasing, um, and very limited supply. Yeah, I dig it. So that's like a good um, uh, complement to the neighborhood. Neighborhood plus supply-demand. Mm-hmm. So, all right, number three, the third, is there has to be some value-add aspect. There has to be some way of going into the asset, whether rents are de- uh, depressed or we're buying it at a significant discount, there has to be some way for us to improve the asset and make it more valuable so that we're not just relying on organic market appreciation. I think that's maybe the most important of, <laughs> I said that about neighborhood. So maybe this is like Mark, uh, Howard Marks's book, The Most Important Thing. All, all of the these are the important. most important thing. Um, you, can't, you can't just have one of these if it's not going to work, but if you can combine all of these good neighborhood cash flow and value add, like you're usually pretty good, but value add is pretty damn important. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. This was one of mine as well. So another overlap. So, so far we've overlapped on two and we've had two somewhat unique ones. Um, anyways, but I think this one is, is so important because it's a hedge against any kind of market headwinds, right? So if you buy something that doesn't have the upside potential, maybe it's just a trophy asset in a trophy location and, that's great. If you've got a bunch of capital that you need to throw somewhere with, with uh, pretty limited downside potential, Warren Buffett tells you, if, you, if you're investing in real, estate, in, in real estate, buy trophy assets. It's like, it makes sense if you've got a bunch of coin that needs to go somewhere and you're not trying to make money, you're just trying to Park keep it. it safe. 
But you don't have any control over that. You're just waiting for the market to do its thing, which takes control out of your hands. And for control freaks like us, we don't like that. So we like to be able to not just hope the market gets better, but also force some appreciation in our assets. So even if the market goes down, we can offset that and at least still keep our valuations um, somewhat level, even when the market around us might be softening. Yeah, and I want to circle back on something that you said there because it has really nothing to do with what we're talking about here in terms of the three must-haves. Maybe it does. So I got tagged on a Twitter post by uh, Ben Michael from Michael Real Estate, who is sharing that there's these eight um, buildings, eight million dollars that just foreclosed on, and they're now available. And and I and I, I'm, is this I, who we? Yes, know? exactly. And so I, I responded as like, what's interesting about these assets is. We put in an offer on these buildings about a year and a half ago, and the seller yelled at us. We did an episode on this where we got into a verbal fist fight with the seller. You should listen to that episode. There was a Fantastic. no implied there. It was, was, a, it was a very strong subtle, note. but so what ended up happening is he did not take our price. A year and a half goes by, nobody takes his price. Buildings are foreclosed on. Now, in that conversation, something very interesting occurred, which was I pointed out to him, "Hey, listen." At these numbers that you're asking, no bank is going to finance this. It just doesn't make sense. It's too much. The only person who's going to be able to buy these at your number is some rich person who's just looking to park money. And he said, well, that's exactly the type of seller or the buyer that I'm looking for. Fine. But like you pointed out, like when Warren Buffett says park money into trophy assets and whatnot, that's great in theory, but there's actually very, very few people capable of doing that. And so if that's your buy and sell strategy, you're, you might find yourself into in a pickle. And these weren't trophy assets. They were not trophy these assets. These were overly um, renovated properties in okay neighborhoods? I would actually say the neighborhoods were pretty good, but, well, the, but the, ex- the externals of the buildings weren't great. No, I'm thinking of well, Lowry. Is his, so, yeah, okay, that was a good location. I'd say that's not trophy, pretty solid. Uh, solid the yeah. one by Lorraine Park. Um, we're giving away a lot of information now. Well, he uh, was <laughs> he was asking for trophy prices. Yes, but the one I looked at that was all the studios, like that was not trophy, and no. it was renovated as, as if it was going to be a trophy asset. It was just sometimes you can over renovate. I guess is if the point I'm trying to make. If you're going to pay trophy prices, make sure you're actually getting a trophy, or you have parking, not just a blue ribbon. <laughs> No park. Anywho. Um, so yeah, value add, I think is hugely important. Those are my three. We've gone through yep. our three. Should yep. we try to shoot from the hip and try to get up to five here? I don't know, man. I think Only these provided are provided four. That's not a good number. Okay. Well, this is neighborhood value add, neighborhood supply demand, value add cash flow. Okay. Let's try and get to five. What would be off the top of your head? What's a fifth one? I got it. Uh, good terms. Good terms. That could apply to debt and uh, negotiations with the seller. Got to be able to get it on good terms. I like that. That's a big one. I'm going to go a slightly different way. So now we're at six. Oh, no. Shit. Okay. So here's here's what I'm thinking (laughs) is we have to have some unique capability. So it can't just be an asset out in Omaha for us. That wouldn't really work given our structure and our team. And... That's a, you know, because we only are here in the Twin Cities. That means certain neighborhoods or certain areas of the Twin Cities are really not conducive for the team to get to. So I think that would be another one, actually. It's just yeah. like, what's your internal capacity? Can you actually run this asset? And you could do remote, but that's just not our business plan. 
Yeah, I like it. I think uh, I wrote down unique advantage. Yeah, right? yeah. You've got to have something that the rest of the market doesn't have or something that you can do better because that's usually where you're going to get the the outperformance over the average guy looking at the deal. Right? Maybe you understand it better. It's your backyard. You've got an in-house team already in place in that neighborhood. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's good. So we got yeah, like four or five or six. I think we have like six. It's going to make for a really weird title. Yeah. So if you clicked and you listened. Um, several must-haves. Several must-haves. Multiple. A few must-haves. <laughs> a bunch. Any, uh, any, any, any interesting books, podcasts, videos that you've consumed recently for the, the listeners mm. at home? Um, I was going to say yes. There was actually a really interesting one I was listening to on commercial real estate debt. Again, this is pretty much all office stuff they're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, I think it's called Block, uh, no, block something. You know what I'm talking about? Block something. No. Block. By the block? Oh, let, me, let me look at it real quick. By the block? No. Let me look it up. You, you throw one out while I'm finding it because it's going to bother me if I don't get um, this right. I, I, one of my favorite podcasts in the world of real estate, if you guys have never heard of it, is called The Fort by uh, Chris Powers. I think it's just a fantastic podcast. They He brings on great guests, talks very in-depth shop. Um, it's fantastic. I don't have a particular episode I'm going to point you guys towards. Just go subscribe and listen, and it'll definitely improve your, your knowledge because... Chris is him and his team are just playing at a very high level. They've been doing this, I think maybe three billion in assets under management. So they they know a thing or two about specifically industrial, but they touch on all sorts of commercial. Actually, I got another one. The one I was thinking about was Blockworks Macro. That's the name of the podcast. Blockworks. Yeah. So they do a bunch of kind of as it's implied, they're like macro conversations, um, not necessarily company specific, but more so like macroeconomic things, interest rate conversations, things like that. But there's another one I just came across, a guy named Chris Williamson. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff. He does longer form stuff that's like three hours long. Yeah, I was at that, uh, I went to a, a creator event in LA um, in June, and Chris was there. Yeah, he, he does some good stuff. Very, very intelligent guy, asks good questions. Did you watch the one that he did with Chris Bumstead? Uh, no, I saw Eric, the, the Eric Weinstein one, Weinstein, yeah. um, cause he's just really inter- an interesting guy. And Eric Weinstein has a really interesting podcast. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, was it the portal portal? Yeah. If yeah. you want your mind blown, that guy thinks deeply. Yeah, no, no. It's uh, any, I think he, I think it was on Chris's podcast. He explained where the, the, the name actually came from, but, uh, oh, um, yeah, it was really fascinating a long time, but Chris is great. Chris, he asked really good questions. And the reason I kind of flipped by for a long time, I saw his like little logo pop up there, but it looked a lot like Tom Bilyeu's. And I'm just like, ah, Tom. Very similar. Yeah, yeah. So the logo looked really similar, but he's his format I like a lot better. He he does, a, he had a really great two, he did a two-part interview with Alex Tramosi a while ago. But Chris is a really deep thinker yeah. and he spends a lot of time honing his craft as an interviewer. I think I told him, I was like, I think in the next 10, 15 years, you'll be on the same level as Joe Rogan in terms of the size of your podcast. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast um, last year and like really helped elevate his brand. But he's got the skill set. I mean, he's like, he's really great at what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's Joe Rogan or uh, Larry King or like, I don't know what it is, but I could see him getting some really good guests because he asks totally really good questions. And they're not like the cookie cutter questions that. These guys that you've seen on other podcasts get asked over yeah. and over and over again. It's always something new. He comes. He he puts a lot of time and energy into it. That podcast is called Modern Wisdom. So yeah. check it out. I was trying to write my head around his background too. Is it like in a factory? So, no, so Chris's you know background is? is funny. He um so he started a nightclub um, marketing business 
they would market and do events at nightclubs. And so every night, like they're bringing people and putting on these shows and doing all this stuff. And then he was a contestant on Love Island, uh, which was like, yeah, Reed laughed because yeah, it's a really big so show. My um, wife knows who he is. So yeah, so he, he, he definitely. So then he uh, he left that kind of fitness space. He's also a fitness influencer. Left that whole party vibe thing. Had the podcast. That going. sounds like an exhausting job. Promoting. Yeah, that's what he oh. said. Um, so now he he what's he called? He's like I'm a recovering party boy or something like that. Um, but he's a. It's really funny because you know his history and you look at it like, oh, he was on Love Island. Like You reality. tend to write people off when you see that. Totally. Like, but uh, he's, no. he's a very deep thinker. He's very intelligent. Um, a lot of great stuff from him. So. Was that just to promote the fitness thing? Just to get exposure for that, I'm guessing? I have no idea. That's Honestly, usually why people go on there. I don't think, I don't think he was like super calculated with it. want to be actors or actresses or they've got some sort of business they're trying to get exposure for. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't actually go on there to find someone. Like, I've known m m multiple people who've been on Bachelor, Bachelorette, whatever it is, and they're never there to try to find mm -hmm. the one. It's, he, it's no, always a marketing no, thing. for sure. He, and what's interesting with Chris, he's about to launch his first physical product biz, uh, business. Mm -hmm. I can't, I'm not going to talk about what that is because um, I don't know if he's talked about it, but the, I think that has the potential to be a very big, profitable, lucrative business for him. Nice. So fast forward a year from now and... We're, is this we'll be, the flying cars you were talking about? No, no, that's a different guy. Um, that's also very cool. Totally different thing. That's Archer. That's a cool company. Text me when that's up and running. I want a flying car. They just did another contract, I think, with the U.S. government, which was very, very massive. But um, it'll be a while till the flying cars are commercially available, unfortunately. If these billionaire geniuses could just hurry up. And Mars can wait. Flying cars. Get those. Flying cars. You yeah. Know, How are we supposed those. to get to Mars if we can't fly? Seriously. Our wheels don't leave the ground. So priorities. Come on, <laughs> Musk. All right. So that's going to do it for us, everybody. Um, I don't even remember what this episode was about, but hopefully it brought you a little bit of value. Bunch of must-haves or something. Bunch of must-haves yeah. of something. That's going to do it for us. Um, as Reed is fond of saying, goodbye. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.